Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're continuing in our journey through the book of Genesis. Find Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, beginning to look over the next couple weeks at the flood together. Genesis chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be verses on the screen behind you, and there's also verses here uh, in your little bulletin you received when you walked in. Genesis chapter 6. And we can read in verse 1, and we'll read the whole chapter together this morning. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and, so, and, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown." The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord." These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. And also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food and for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of God. Can I make a bit of a confession? I have a beef with some children's Bible stories. <laughs> there, I said it. 
I especially have a problem when I see these Bible stories, you'll find them, or, this, or these you know, literature aimed at young children, and it tends to minimize or soften the biblical account. And one of the most popular accounts I think gets destroyed by some of these books is the flood. I did a quick Google search this week, and I googled the flood, Bible children's stories, and I hit images. And here's one of the first results that came up from... Uh, BedtimeShortStories.com. This is something they want you to read to your kids and show them this picture and go, here, honey, this is how this happened. Straight up, the flood is a terrible bedtime story for your children. (laughs) Just putting that out there, this is the the news of God judging the earth and all but eight people dying and all but eight people dying is not something you want to lull your child to sleep with, right? But also, I think the photo shows that often we are raising children to think that that is what happened, that that photo was what this looked like. And we, then we wonder why they walk away from the faith later in life. One of the reasons I actually read to you the account of Genesis 6 and I read to you passages of Scripture is we're often so easy just to either think we've read them before or, well, I've heard it, so I don't need to read it, or, or, or think, well, I, I've read it before. I don't need to look at it again. But, friends, what we trivialize or assume or even turn into a cartoon, the next generation will reject. So we need to be careful that we, don't have, that we have faith like children, but that doesn't mean having a childish faith. Having a humble, trusting faith doesn't mean being immature in our faith. And so we need to be blunt and clear about the flood. In fact, I would say that the flood should be marked with a reader's discretion is advised at the start of the account. Because this is simply not a children's story. While I don't think the Bible is ever impure or sinful in how it presents things... It isn't shy about the realities that for us can often be hard to swallow. So let's dive into week one of sort of a a few weeks of looking together at the flood. And I want us to see just two things this morning, two primary verbs, and you'll see some sub points in your notes this morning, two things that we simply cannot miss. First, we should see that God saw, God saw Let's start at verse 5. So Genesis 6, verse 5. Look at this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a summary statement, (laughs) right? Look at that. What a summary statement. And so this is the first sub-point you see here. God saw the wickedness of the world. God saw the wickedness of the world. And now, when the Bible speaks of God seeing, it isn't sort of giving us the picture that, well, God was on a stroll, and then he came back, and look, everything was a wreck. No, God seeing something is in the same sense we saw when we looked in Genesis 1 of God creating the day, and he saw that it was good. It's simply his, it's saying God recognized the state of things. You know how some people say, I, I, the way I see it, that's the way it is? Well, that's true for God in every sense. The way God sees it is the way it is. God truly is the only one who can call it like he sees it because he sees it perfectly. 
And look how humanity was. I want you to notice the tiny words here. Wickedness was so great that every intention of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. I mean, he couldn't have got more clear (laughs) with how bad and wicked things were. And he said people's actions weren't just bad, but even their thoughts and their motives were always aimed toward bad. The world was wicked to a unique point here. And we may want to wonder, how in the world did that happen? How did things get to this point in the the world as it was then? Well, Genesis 6, 1-4 is here to catch us up. Think of it sort of like a a scene that's moving and the movie flashes here to Genesis 1, Genesis 6, 1-4 to to sort of catch us up here to Noah's day. Look with me, Genesis 6, 1-2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Now, this is one of the very, very interesting sections of the book of Genesis. And if you were to go into a bookstore or go on Amazon and pick up lots of different Uh, commentaries on Genesis, there would be all sorts of thoughts about who the sons of God are in this passage. There are sort of three views that can prevail. First, there are some who say that these sons of God are are sort of these mighty kings that ruled in this day. If you look in a couple of the Psalms, particularly Psalm 82, they use the term God with a small g in reference to rulers in that day, that they were mighty men, mighty rulers. Second, Some believe, and I think it's possible, that the sons of God could be referring to the godly line of Seth, that they're believers, they were sons of God, and them them intermingling with the daughters of men would be intermingling with the line of Cain. In other words, that the issue was mass missionary dating gone bad. It was all of these Christian folks going... And we're back. Cool. I can do this. There we go. We needed this because I know there's some folks live streaming that would not be able to hear me. Without the mic on, here's what, I, here's what I was going at. Here's what we were going, right? We were looking, there's all these thoughts on what Genesis 6, 1 to 2 speaks about. And one of, the, one of the conclusions I think we see is that these sons of God were not in reference to people there in the world, but of these spiritual beings, of these fallen spiritual beings that were there in this day that were intermingling and marrying with the daughters of men. I know that that sounds weird, but let me get you to think about a few things. Every time the term sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it is a reference to spiritual beings such as angels and demons. Good, I can walk around with this. This works a lot better for me. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. Thank you all for sticking with me while we figure this out, right? I know it's weird, but every time the the term sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it's a reference to a spiritual being such as an angel or a demon. Consider Job chapter 1 verse 2 was a classic example when Satan and the sons of God approach God to tempt Job. Also, notice Genesis 6 seems to be contrasting sons of God and daughters of men. It seems to be contrasting these things here. Also, there are a few interesting New Testament passages that I think speak to this event. First, you can see this on the screen or look this up on your own, but in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter is seeking to encourage believers under trial that the Lord knows how to rescue 
the godly from trial and keep the unrighteous until the punishment of judgment day. So he wants to make that point. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly and judge the unrighteous. And he does this by offering Old Testament examples. He wants to show you throughout the Old Testament that God will rescue his people and judge the wicked. And he offers these various examples. He uses Lot and the, and the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah of one of these. But he also speaks about the days of Noah. And look what he says. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Look at this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he, had not, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So you see here, he's talking about the days of Noah and the flood, and he says, in those days, angels sinned. Where did that happen? I didn't, I mean, I don't read anything else in the early chapters of Genesis that seemed to fit with that. Consider also Jude, the book of Jude. Jude's got one chapter, and in verse 6, here's what it says. Angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then he compares these angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued a natural desire, served as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. I think the New Testament, 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6 and other passages, even confirm that the sons of God being spoken here were, were some sort of demonic fallen creatures that were going on here. And clearing through the controversy, clearing through the controversy, a few things are clear. Note that the temptation in Genesis 6 here is very much like the one we saw in Genesis 3. If you notice here, verse 2 again, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. They saw, just as Adam and Eve did, they saw the fruit, they saw it was good and that they delighted in it, and then they took it. That these fallen spirits were following in the same path that Satan led the first couple on. They were following right in line, right in the path. The second issue people I'm sure would, are curious about, if you know much about some of the things around Genesis 6, is what about these, these Nephilim that it talks about? Look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Again, there's a lot of speculation you can read about here. Some want to talk about these Nephilim as, as giants that were living in those days or even the product of these sort of unions that were going on and that they outlived the flood. I mean, there's some wild stuff you could go read about that I had to read this week in, pref in preparation for this. I think we should be much less speculatory and far more straightforward because... Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, seems to want us to see that these Nephilim were, in fact, men. Look there. These were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Not some sort of odd mixture of angelic and human. 
And when he talks about them being there in those days, he's meaning, I think, not just the days that Genesis 6 were occurring, but even before then, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth. These folks have been here a long time. Whoever these Nephilim people were, he's wanting to clear away some of the fog and tell us and set the record straight that whatever rumor the people of God may have heard in their day about these mighty men, he wants to clear it away and go, guys, they're just men. Mighty men, men of old, but simply men. Beyond all speculation, hear me here, beyond all that, you can, if you forget everything I just said, hear this, God's design was being perverted. God's design was being perverted. God commanded Adam and Eve in the beginning to be fruitful and multiply. And regardless of what view you take on this, that was being distorted here. They were being fruitful and multiplying with whatever they want without regard for God or his ways. And that these mighty men of old, as great as they might have been, were not able to do what Adam was put in the garden to do, which was to protect and to cultivate and to pursue godliness and to curb wickedness in the world. And it was because of this that God said in verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in or with man forever, for his flesh, his days, shall be a hundred and twenty years. It seems to best mean that the days from when God said this to the days of the flood would be a hundred and twenty years. A hundred and twenty years, and that was it. Even just consider that. All this going on, all the wickedness, all of the intentions of man's heart being evil continuously, and God still gave them 120 years. Oh, the patience of God to look upon a world lost in sin and give them time. 1 Peter 3.20, you can mark this down, says that God waited patiently in the days of Noah, that God never acts rashly or impulsively. God doesn't act rashly or impulsively. He acts justly. And that wasn't all, as if Genesis 6, 1 to 4 wasn't enough. Look what he goes on to say, Genesis 6, verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart And God said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. And then skip down verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God regretted, it says. Your translation may say repented, God grieved, God felt sorry. And it says that the world wasn't just pursuing after all sort of promiscuousness in these days, but they were violent and corrupt all the way down. Think about that. It says God felt sorry to his heart that he made man. We need to be careful here because some read this and think, well, it says God regretted, so God must regret like I do. Or if your translation says that God repented, they go, well, God must repent like, like we do. Because repentance for us is a change of heart, a change of attitude, or, or to turn and be transformed. But for God in Genesis 6, God doesn't change in at least his heart or his essence, but he can change his actions. 
He doesn't change who he is, but he can go from being patient to no longer holding out in patience and being just and, and, and instead, of, instead of patiently waiting for them, doing what he promised he would do. God doesn't change who he is. He's free to respond to human rebellion however he pleases. But here, he would no longer let it go by in patience, but he put forward his plan from eternity. His actions changed. And do you and do you blame him? Look at all God saw. Look at all God saw. He saw the wickedness of the world, but that wasn't all he saw. It wasn't all he saw. God saw the righteousness of Noah. God saw in the midst of all of this, he saw the righteousness of Noah. There's, There's some good news glimmering off of this very strange passage here. After we get this background, look what it says, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. Noah, in the sea of rebellion and sin, he sought the Lord and he found him to be gracious, compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and kindness. In the sea of darkness, there was still a man seeking the Lord. He found favor grace in the eyes of the Lord. And if, if you remember being with us last week, this was not the first time we heard about Noah, was it? There was some expectation here. Look at back with me at chapter 5 and verse 28. Look what it says here. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called him Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our works and from the painful toil of our hands. See, in the Old Testament, a child's name was meant to cue us into something, either their role, their, chi- their, their role, their character, who they were, what they were supposed to do. And Noah was set apart for a unique role to bring relief or comfort from their work, from the painful toil of their hands. Now, when Adam and Eve had sinned, one of the things that was, that, that was cursed, we saw from the introduction of sin into the world, was the ground and our labor. And when he says Noah was going to bring comfort or bring relief, it was saying he'd bring relief from this curse. There was expectation in the life of Noah. And in verse 9, we see an introduction here to the to the flood account, kind of an, a familiar transition we've seen before. These are the generations of Noah. Verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. God saw Noah. And before we get caught up in what Noah did by building the ark, or even in his own blamelessness and righteousness, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, would call us to consider that it wasn't Noah's works that primarily pleased God, but rather his faith. See this, Hebrews eleven seven. look what it says. By faith... Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Ultimately, this righteousness that Noah had wasn't his own. 
It was a gift that he received by faith. Noah's faithfulness to God was rooted in his own faith in God. He believed, so he obeyed. So often people paint it like Noah was saved because of all he did for God, as if somehow he could earn grace by obeying. But notice, Noah found grace before he built anything. Noah got grace before he built anything. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord before he even had heard from God initially what was coming. God saw the wickedness of humanity, and God saw the righteousness of Noah, a gift he receives, he received by faith. And I don't think we give Noah's faith enough credit. We talk all about how great it was that he, that he built this big boat, But day after day, he went to work on this boat. And remember, Noah lived a long time, and he didn't have Netflix, so he had time to do this, right? And while doing it, imagine the mockery he received. Noah, it ain't going to rain. Noah, God would never judge the world. Lighten up, Noah. Be more inclusive and loving. And yet Noah continued both to build the boat and, we're told, he preached the truth. And he continued as a herald of righteousness, we're told in Second Peter. Friends, would we have Noah's faith? Would we continue to herald the truth even when we're mocked and humiliated? May we ask God to give us the faith of Noah the prophet. God saw the wickedness of the world and the righteousness of Noah, but God also spoke. That's the second thing we see. God saw, and now we see that God spoke. We've seen this a little bit in verse 3 and verse 7, but we see this really plainly in verse 13. Verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then verse 17. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. God spoke, and he spoke first a promise of judgment. A promise of judgment. In other words, he was going to flood the whole earth. And he didn't just say it, friends. We know he did it. God's one that when he says he's going to do something, he will bring it about. And we'll look a little more next week when we're in chapter 7, but I want us to see that God meant what he said. Flip over to Genesis 7, verse 19, to the very next chapter and see this. Genesis chapter 7, verse 19. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. You can mark this. That's about 22 feet. That's how I'm at 15 cubits, about 22 feet. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. And he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blot out from the earth. And then verse 24, here's what we see. 
and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. God meant what he said. He flooded the earth in judgment and he wiped it clean. And before we begin to complain about the fairness of God, consider what he saw and how long he saw it. Some of us really struggle when we see passages like the flood and then think, well, isn't God love? How could a loving God flood the whole earth? And yet the better question to ask is, how could a loving God not do this sort of thing? How could a loving God let violence in this world go unanswered? How could a loving God let wickedness abound for century after century and do nothing? So many of us cry out, God, do something about injustice in our world, and then we get mad when he does. A loving God is a just God, and a loving God is a God who will bring justice for wrongdoing. What sort of God would let murder go unpunished? What sort of loving father would let his children be exploited and taken advantage of? The flood was a promise of judgment. God saw and God spoke, but he spoke a second promise here, a promise of salvation. God spoke a promise of judgment and a promise of of salvation. Back in chapter 6, verse 14, in the midst of speaking about the coming of the flood, look what God instructs Noah. Look what he says. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a room for the ark and finish it do a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side, make it with lower, second, and third decks, he says, to build a boat. Build a boat. Not like a small boat that we saw in the child story, right? He gives some some details, though not, not as many details as many of us might like. But he said to build a boat. And we see that this boat was 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high, and a cubit is about 18 inches. So doing the math, you don't have to pull out your calculator. I did some of these calculations this week. That's around 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Huge. That's a big old boat, ain't it? That's a huge, huge boat boat that Noah built. And I saw some additional numbers here that said that the ark would have potentially had 1.4 million cubit feet inside of its total deck area. That's 1.4 million cubit feet of total deck area and 95,700 square feet. That's a big boat. It's a big boat. And God made salvation available to Noah, his family, and a lot of animals through this ark. And notice how Genesis goes on, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in with you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this 
He did all that God commanded him. In this, God was establishing a covenant with Noah. Again, something we'll see more in the weeks to come, but to establish a covenant meant God was making a promise to Noah. And he was saying, Noah, I am promising you by all the power that's in me as creator of the universe that you, your family, and the animals aboard this boat will be saved, that God will be his rescuer. And not only is this a loving thing, they would survive the flood, but verse 21 tells us that he'd get to bring food on board. It said he's even going to provide him with enough food and snacks for the road. Isn't God loving and caring to provide for him? God would provide and take care of Noah, not just to get him from point A to point B, but for the whole journey in between. And so we see that Noah believed God's word and got to work. We don't get a ton of the details, again, as to how Noah built this, but we know he did, and verse 22 told us Noah did it, and he did all that God commanded him. God saw the wickedness of humanity and the midst of it, the righteousness of one man who was trusting him by faith. And God spoke both a promise of judgment and a promise of salvation. But friends, we often are so eager to hear this and ask all these questions and think about it. But the flood isn't simply an event to look back and marvel at. Jesus taught his disciples to think about the days of Noah when we think about his return. We'll think, we'll look more at this again as we continue to look at the flood, but the flood is a picture of the renewal of all things that God promises to do in the world. Look what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Look at this. He says, but concerning that day and hour, here referring to his second coming, to his return one day to renew all things and to create a new heavens and a new earth concerning that day and hour. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And what does he mean by that? For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. He says, one day he's going to come, and just as unexpected as the flood was to so many people, he's going to come and he's going to renew the earth. He's going he's to do like the flood. He's going to transform and renew the earth as we know it. And so Jesus concludes with verse 44. Therefore, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The point of the flood is this, be ready. The point of the flood is just like in the days of Noah, God has promised both a day of judgment and a way of salvation for each of us. But the time of judgment that's coming isn't in water, but in fire. Consider with me Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 draws this connection for us as many of us often doubt or mock or scoff and go, man, the preacher's talking about Jesus coming and judging. He's never going to do that. That's never going to happen. And people in Peter's day were, were saying the exact same thing. Look what, look what this says. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, or verse 4. Look what he says. They 
which were false teachers and followers in that day, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. People were mocking and they were asking, where is this coming? Why is he delayed? All things have always been the way they are now. And Peter said, no, they haven't. They haven't always been as they were. God has stepped into history and interrupted it. Look what he says, verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through the water by word of, by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Here he's talking about the flood. The flood came out of nowhere and showed the world what, what it, that God meant what he said. That the world will not just keep going on as it's always been. And God renewed the world by water. And look at the very next verse, verse 7, 2 Peter 3, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. God has a day when he will come and judge the world just as he did in the days of Noah. And we need to ask ourselves, how will that impact how we live? How will that impact what we do? What will that impact for us be? And the good news is twofold. First, God is patient. God is incredibly patient. Consider again in Peter, Second Peter says, he says this in chapter 3, verse 8. Look at this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient. If you're nothing else that I've said this morning, hear this. God has allowed you today to hear his word, that God was patient in the days of Noah, calling people to come to him, and his desire for you is that you should not perish but be saved. And that the way to be saved is not is by coming not to a boat, but to a man. Jesus Christ is our ark. The ark is a picture of what God would do in Jesus, because he has been drowned in our place when he died on the cross. He was drowned in the judgment of God, and he drank hell dry for those of us who will trust in him. On the cross, Jesus died to bear your sins, and three days later, he rose again to show that the debt was paid and the power of sin is canceled and broken. Just as Noah would be saved and stand on the other side by trusting in the ark, we, friends, will be saved and stand on the other side of the judgment by trusting in Jesus. Friends, today, Jesus can save you from your sins, and you don't even got to build a boat. You look to him in faith. Today, Jesus can save you. Place your faith in him, and not simple belief. People so often think faith is just, well, I, I can check a box. Friends, what faith was, what faith is, is no one didn't just believe God's word and go, well, that's going to happen. Friends, he, he, he believed God, and he built a boat, and he got in the boat. He actually had to trust that the boat would get him to the other side, just like when he walked in this morning. 
all of us walked in and we sat down in the chair that we got in this morning. We didn't necessarily look at all the arguments for the chair's existence. We didn't go and do all the things making sure the chair would hold us up. You know how you know if the chair is going to hold you up? You sit in it, right? You know, if, you know how you have faith in the chair? You trust it, and you sit in it. Friends, to have faith in Jesus is to sit down. It's to trust that he is enough to hold up your sin, to forgive it, to cleanse it, that his death, burial, and resurrection is enough. And friends, this isn't just a word of salvation from future judgment because the flood wants to also encourage how you live today. Let me conclude with looking at one other promise that Peter tells us to look to in light of the flood. Second Peter chapter 3 again, verse 10. Look at this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a war, with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. See this, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Since this world as we know it is going to be radically renovated and resurrected and transformed, what sort of people ought we be? Shouldn't we as a church body be passionate about sharing the gospel with our friends and family? Shouldn't we be passionate about living lives of holiness and godliness, not living for the world's applause, but for the applause of our King, who one day we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me tell you, we live in a world where it's easy right now to get consumed in what's going on in this world. It is so easy to get caught up in what's going on right here in front of us. And the flood says, look beyond that. Look beyond that to things that will outlast even God flooding the earth. Look past that because the world as is will pass away. And there's a world coming where righteousness dwells. We await and hasten the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And in light of that, what sort of people ought we be. That's what the flood would have us consider this morning. And this morning, if, if you've heard this news and you're hearing this, and unlike Noah's day, you're hearing and going, I want to get in the boat. <laughs> the flood's coming. Let me in the boat. The good news is the door is open. Jesus says, I am the door. And any who come to me, he says, I will not cast away. You can place your faith in Jesus right where you are and cry out to him to save you. And if you need to talk to somebody, I'm here. There's folks around you who would love to talk to you further. And we'd love to tell you about how you can know and have assurance of your eternity. But for those of us who do know him, I really want us to press in this question. Are we living for the world as is or living for the world that will be? And how could that change in the midst of our eyes being set on who's in the White House, with our eyes set on, on, on viruses and pandemics and set on all of these things, will we look, will we just look by faith 
to the world that God is bringing and live differently today in light of his future promise. Let's pray together. Father God, we're thankful for who you are. We're thankful that you want to grab our attention this morning. And even in the midst of whatever may be happening in in the world and and whatever it is, Lord, we know that your word speaks clearly. I pray that you would get me out of the way, Lord, that ultimately your word does the work among your people this morning. If there's someone today who knows you or who doesn't know you, that you would draw them to yourself in these moments, that they would be drawn to you and see your, your surpassing beauty and worth and be drawn to you to be saved. Lord, I also ask that you would change how we live as believers as we so often live distracted by the world. May we live in light of your coming and in light of a new heavens and a new earth without pandemics, without politics, because there'll be one king and one savior ruling over all, and his name is Jesus. And we long for and hasten that day to come. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.